As I said, my name is John Dunning. I serve as the campus minister on the campus of Kansas State University. It's hard for me to say this, but I've been there now eight years. We're in the middle of our eighth year, and this is by far the strangest, which I'm sure is not a shock to anybody present, because I think your life has probably felt turned upside down as well. Um, sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. It's good to be with you this morning. I, I know that your pastor's been under the weather, and so I'm not thankful for that, but I'm thankful for the providence that, allows, that God has allowed me to be here by my reckoning. It's been a couple of years since we've been together. If you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to Psalm 86 as we consider these words this morning. It's also the, the text that we'll be considering is also printed in your bulletin, and I'd encourage you to follow along as we open it together this morning. I say this often to the students with whom I, to whom I minister, and I've said it often in the past, but a pastor that was an influential mentor in my life in a previous time in my life once told me and told a group of us that the hardest part of his job is praying. And this is a man um, by all reputation, a man of great standing, a man of great intelligence, a man of great, great piety, a man of great faith. And yet, and to, as, a, as a young minister in training, to hear him say that prayer was the hardest part of his job made me pause because I didn't understand. I understand more now. And so as often as I can, I love to consider the, uh, how Scripture guides us in prayer, which is what I'd like to do with us this morning, using these words from Psalm 86. Um, the, the, text is, uh, the, the heading tells us it was written by David, and as we read it, I want you to pay attention to his circumstances, especially that he speaks out of, the, the, where he is, what's going on in his life, and what, what we learn from that as you hear the context of these words that are spoken. Hear now the God's word as I read to us read to it to read to us this morning from Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for, for you for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not see you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me. And be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame. Because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray as we consider these words together. Father in heaven, I ask this morning that by the power of your spirit, because of the work of your Son, that you would send out your light and your truth, that they would lead us, that they would guide us, that they would take us to the place where you are, the place where you dwell, that we might behold you, and that we might be changed. Father, we are distracted, we are discouraged, we are dismayed. 
and yet you are the faithful one. We ask this morning that you would meet us in through your word. In your name, Jesus, we pray all of this. Amen. When I was in junior high and high school, my mom and I had this ongoing discussion, so to speak, regarding the cleanliness of my room. And let's be honest, it really was, the discussion really wasn't about how clean my room was. The discussion was about how clean my room wasn't. You see, I had this very intricately designed system. If the clothes were on the floor, they were dirty. If they were on my desk or my drum set, which was in my room at that time, they were clean. And it made sense to me because on the floor, you know, I don't want to put clothes on that I've stepped on or walked or had to walk around or that have been in the dirt of the floor. But if they were hanging up on some other place in my room, they were clean. The other part of this discussion, so to speak, centered on whether or not my bed was made. Now, I'll be honest with you, we have three children now, a 16-year-old, a 13-year-old, and a 9-year-old, I think, give or take a year each. And, and I'll be honest with you, I understand my mom's position now fully. Well, I, I, I should say I apply that to myself fully. I don't know that I understand it any more than I did then. But the discussion went something like this, John, make sure you make your bed. And my response, of course, was, but why? I'm going to sleep in it again tonight anyway. If you're a child in the room, I'm sure you've said that to your parent, and if you're a parent, I'm sure you've heard that. And kids, one day you will understand, and it will be different for you, but today you may not. But it highlights the definition of insanity that we've all heard before, right? That doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results is how we define insanity. Why should I bother making my bed, Mom? I'm just going to sleep in it again tonight. Nothing is going to change. We're going to repeat this pattern over and over again. What's the big deal? I wonder if we feel that way this morning. I wonder if when we think about the thought of praying to God based on our circumstances, we wonder together or individually, what's it going to accomplish? Is it really going to change anything in my life? I look around me and I see hurt and I see suffering and I see frustration and I see mourning and loss and grief. Why bother? What's the point? I know, I, I, only because I can assume, because your heart can't be that different from mine. I know that we're frustrated, that we're angry, that we're fearful, that we're worried, and that life feels very uncomfortable for many of us right now. And we wonder, is it ever going to change? And so we ask, why bother praying? Now, there's a more sophisticated version of this dilemma that we all face. The more sophisticated version goes something like this. I know with confidence, because the Bible tells me so, that God is in control of all things. I know that Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. I know that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This, this more sophisticated version of this dilemma it sounds much the same. I know that God is in control. I know that he's concerned about every detail of my life. So what difference is it going to make if whether or not I pray? We're distracted, God seems distanced, and our hearts are disordered. What do we do with that? I want to tell you quickly up front that Scripture calls us to pray. It calls us to pray by, by, by example, as, we, as we've already prayed the Lord's Prayer this morning, that Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way. We hear his disciples, in fact, in Luke 11, ask, Master, teach us to pray. And we also see the example over and over again in the Psalms of the writers 
crying out to God in the midst of their need. So what do we do with this? What I want us to see this morning is that David models for us what it looks like to pray in the midst of these questions, in the midst of our doubts and our fears, our concerns and our anxieties. And what I want you to know here is what we see in these words is not a well-rehearsed piety, as if David is simply saying, I know the words to say, so I'm going to say them by rote and go on to the next part of my life. It's very clear through this text, what we hear over and over again is, is David crying out and even acknowledging where he finds himself in fear, in hurt, in feeling lost. And so I want us this morning to consider these words together and, and see what it looks like for us in the midst of wherever you find yourself this morning, what it looks like to lean into that, those realities and cry out to God. I want to consider, first of all, the first seven verses. And, and what I want us to hear is David actually praying that very dilemma that, he, that we feel and that he no, no doubt would have felt. Notice what he says in the first verse. He says, he, says in, he begins in verse 1, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. We jump down to verse 6. He says again, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. He says, incline your ear to me. Stretch out your ear. Come near to me, O Lord. I need to know that you hear me. I need to know that you can come near and listen to me in the midst of my trouble. I wonder for David if he feels like God is not close at all. And then if he fears that God may not even be listening to him. It's a bold ask to speak to the creator of the universe, the one who created his ears, to cry out to him and say, incline your ear to me, O God. Listen to me, please. Parents, you, you hear that often, don't you? Mom, Dad, listen to this. Come over here, watch this. Come here, listen to what I, listen to what I'm, listen to what I just heard. David is crying out to his father that he might be heard. Some years ago, I read an article, a news article about an earthquake that happened in Turkey. This must have been over 20 years ago now. Where rescue crews from around the world had, had descended upon the city with big machinery, with dogs, and with plenty of volunteers to help dig through the rubble, meticulously looking for any signs of life that they could find. And they worked tirelessly from morning to night, every day, for weeks on end, searching for those who may have survived. But every so often, the article went on to explain that it all would stop. The machines would be turned off, the workers would stop, that they'd gather the dogs away from the site. And you know what they would do? The workers would get, up, get down on their hands and knees and put their ears to the ground simply to listen for any scratching or any, any cries for help, however faint they may be. They needed to be close to hear. That's what David longs for. That's what we long for, isn't it? We long to know that God is near, that he is close, that he would, as it were, bend down on his hands and knees and hear even our faintest of cries to him. But there's more. Notice what David does. He does he's, he's asking for more than a sympathetic ear. He's actually praying for, for action to take place. Look, beginning in verse 2. He says, preserve my life. Save your servant. In verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for, you, to, for to you do I cry all the day. He's crying out for God to take action in his life and in his world. Know, beloved, that this is, the, this is what is the heart of prayer. It's asking your heavenly Father to do something in your life. It's asking for him to take action. It's asking for God to act in our lives and in his world. And I don't want to move too quickly past verse 4 because this has fascinated me for a number of years now as someone who is prone to discouragement 
and struggle. He says in verse 4, Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Gladden the soul of your servant. He's praying that God himself, in the midst of his struggle, in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of his fear, would give him joy, would meet him in his sorrow and sadness and fear and bring joy. Beloved, I, I tell you that and I point that out in part because I want you to feel the freedom. When life is hard, don't see joy as something you have to muster up inside of yourself. Ask the Lord to work that out in your life. Ask him to bring joy in the midst of your sorrow. Our dilemma is that God seems far, that, he isn't, that it seems that he isn't doing anything, and that I have to be happy to approach him, that I have to pretend that I've got myself all put together. But that's not what we hear in these verses. When I, when I say that David actually prays his dilemma, what, what David does is he sets it all on the table before God. He says, God, this is where I am. And I need you to come near because it doesn't feel like you are near. And I need you to move because it doesn't seem like that you are acting very much. This is an invitation, beloved, not to clean yourselves up before you run to God, nor to have everything figured out before you pray. I know that that's our tendency. It's easy, easy for us to think that we must be right before, before God will help us. But the invitation here is to seek God's help to be made right. Beloved, don't let your needs keep you from your heavenly Father. When he feels silent, tell him that. He can take it. When he feels distant, ask that he would be near. Lean into that. Pray the dilemma that you feel. Don't pretend that it's not there. As we hear David working through these circumstances, we, we move on to the second section of the psalm, verses 8 through 13, where, where what I want you to hear David do is not only he's pray, is he praying the dilemma that he feels, but he prays the doctrine that he knows to be true. Notice what he does. It takes an interesting turn beginning in verse 8. He prays about the, the uniqueness of God in verse 8, he, the action of God in history, the creation of humanity, the promise of eternal restoration, back to the uniqueness of God in verse 10. This is the reality that Jesus bumped into over and over again. Because the question when Jesus came and he began to say to people, your sins are forgiven, the people wrestled with, it, with the truth that he was proclaiming. The question that Jesus would receive at that moment was, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says, the doctrine, the truth matters. Yes, I can forgive sins because I am God. The invitation is that we would pray the truth about who God is. Again, look at verse 8 and, and hear what he says. There is none like you among the gods. In verse 10, if you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. In these verses, he's re recounting everything that he knows to be true about God, that he learned from his, parents, from his parents' knees as a young child as he heard the word and he heard the stories of, the of his ancestors. He's praying the truth of God back to God. And that's part of our invitation here. It's a dominant theme throughout. We see it in verse 2, verse 5, verse 7, verse 13, verse 15, and verse 17. Who, beloved, know that who God is matters. And he invites us to pray to him based on who he is. When we pray that this doctrine, when we pray this truth, what we're doing is we're asking God to be who he is. Not to be some some, something that we would fabricate or that we would have to dream up all on our own but to hear the truth of God's word and how he describes who he is and to pray that back to him. 
But with that, with the reminder, reminding ourselves of what the truth is, bound up in that reality is the reminder that there's a response for us that we are to pray about as well, that is intimately connected to what we believe to be true, to what the doctrine is. Look at verses 11 and 12 in particular. As he prays, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Teach me your way that I may walk in your truth. The implication is that part of David's prayer here is not just that he would know what is true and that he'd be reminded of what is true, but that that truth would infect every part of his life. That he might walk every day forward based on that truth. That that truth would change him and shape how he lives. These are right responses based on who God is. David is seeing his need for the whole of his life to be shaped by God. He's seeing the disintegration of his heart. You know what it is, don't you, to feel, to feel that your heart is not united. And if you don't, consider how often and what it looks like for you to thank God for the blessings in your life. I realized this recently when a friend challenged me to consider these verses, even in isolation, to consider what it looks like to, have, to pray for a united heart and then to give thanks for that. And what it revealed about my own tendency is that when I thank God, I have a yes but. God, I'm thankful for this technology that allows me to connect with students, but I don't like it, and it's really frustrating, and I don't want to do it. God, I'm thankful for your provision for my family, but I've got too many holes in my house and things that keep falling apart and need repair, and I don't have enough time. We give these conditional thank we give conditional thanksgiving. And what David is modeling for us is on the upon the truth of God and his control over all of life, his generousness and his graciousness, the very who the very realities of who he is. He prays in response that our hearts would be united in thanksgiving to God. What is true matters for how we live our lives, and that's the intention. A few years ago, I, I got some new, new set of contact lenses. I've had bad eyesight since high school. And, but I got these new contact lenses, and, and what the, as the doctor was telling me how these work, they're a little bit different from past lenses that I've had. The, the, the eye doctor would, would exp, was explaining to me that you, you, fill it, you fill the lens with solution, and then you stick it in your eye and let it sit there for a moment. And she said, you'll know right away that something is wrong because it may be blurry or there may be some sort of flash or something off to the side that's going to be like a distraction for you. But what she, what, she, what she said was, you have to actually look into a mirror to see what's going on at that moment because there may be a bubble or maybe something else that's trapped in there. But, and, and so imagine putting your contact lenses in and looking up at the world and seeing blur or seeing some sort of distraction or something that's floating in your eye that's in the way. Knowing that reality, the intention is that you would do something about it, that you would take the lens out, that you'd clean it out again and put it back in, trying to get it right. It doesn't make any sense to have something that obstructs our vision and we do nothing about it. The truth of God and the truth of who he is, the truth of doctrine is intended to be the same, same thing for us. That who God is matters and has implications for every part of our life. It's important for us to know this, especially as we, we at times justify our lack of prayer by re resorting to God's sovereignty. God is in charge. Why does it matter? No. God is in charge. Therefore, he will hear you. God is concerned about every detail in your life. Therefore, bring to him every detail of your life. 
God shows again because he is all-powerful, because he is the Almighty One, because he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, because his spirit is present in you, because Jesus lived, died, and rose again on your behalf. Pray to him with confidence, with great courage, because this is true. You see, studying theology, studying doctrine isn't merely about getting it right. It has ramifications for how we go about living our lives. And the invitation of this psalm is to pray those realities to God himself in the midst of our need. And so look at the last section. Look at verses 14 to 17. David models for us what it looks like to pray our, the dilemma that we feel, to pray the doctrine that we know to be true. And pardon my grammar, but in this last section, what David models for us is what it looks like to pray the wait, to pray as we wait for God to respond. In, in some ways, this last section harkens back to verses 1 to 7, though it actually shows a place of greater clarity for David, maybe, maybe as a result of even writing these words down as he processed through his own grief and hurt and fear. Notice where he lands beginning in verse 7, or verse 14, I'm sorry. He says there, O Lord, O, o God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they, they do not set you before them. David reveals to us what he's up against. It's not just trouble in general. It's not just suffering in this world. But people have risen up against him, people who don't serve the, his God, who don't know him, who reject and don't, or at least don't acknowledge the very truth that David is praying here. The trouble becomes specific as David continues to pray. But notice what, what, begins, what, begins in verse, what continues in verse 15. He says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You see, as David waits for God to answer, he's, he prays more specifically about his circumstances and he prays more specifically about who God is. This is how God speaks of himself. These words echo Exodus 34, 6 and 7 that have already been hinted at twice before in this, in this psalm in verses 5 and 13. This is who God is. It is not an add-on to his being or, or his purposes in the world. David re returns to what God has already revealed himself to be before his people. God is merciful and God is gracious. He is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God recites the words of his forefathers or recites the words of God himself given to his servant Moses. This is who God is. Again, we hear David crying out in clarity even as he waits. And then look at verses 16 and 17. The ask there is repeated, isn't it? Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show to me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He's asking for a sign. He's asking for some notice that the life will not be like this forever. But what I want you to see, even as he repeats himself somewhat in, the, in this last section, what we hear is that we don't know that David's circumstances specifically in this moment were ever really resolved. There's not a neat bow on this package. It's not all tied up at the end of a 22-minute sitcom episode on, that we watch on TV. The reality of this is that, it, it, that we don't know what happens next. And yet we hear in David's voice, even as he waits, we hear a tone of confidence because he's honest about his circumstances. And he, but in the midst of that honesty, he looks to who God is. And he continues to ask that God would move and that God would act. This is how we wait, brothers and sisters. But let's be honest. This waiting cuts to the heart of our 21st century experience in this world, doesn't it? 
When's the last time you went somewhere without your phone? When's the last time you went to the store or the library or the DMV without your phone and had to wait and wait with nothing to distract you? Now, I'm not chastising anybody. I, it's, it's my boat, too. I'm in the exact same spot. But imagine sitting in the dentist's office for a whole 10 minutes without a TV, without new, a news feed to check, without text to be sent or a phone call to make. Where does that take you? Even in describing it to you, I physically feel a little bit odd right now because the nervousness that I get of having to wait with nothing to distract me or turn my way. David models for us what it looks like for us to wait, doesn't he? He says we can be specific as we wait about our need and about who God is and about what, we, what we're asking him to do. Beloved, I, I want to encourage you and call you to be specific regarding your trouble in prayer. To, to do this so, so that you might see that God is at work in all things. It may sound foolish to thank him for a good meal or to thank him for the ability to cook out on the grill or thankful for even for the chance to go out in public again, to go to a restaurant. You may find it silly to be thankful that your child took a, an actual nap in the afternoon or that you had a good night's sleep. And it isn't that the midst of what, what we see, if God is indeed in charge of all things, if he's, if he's in the midst of all the details of our lives, isn't it faithful and honest to respond to him in prayer in those moments? To be thankful for very specific things and to pray for very specific things, to learn to see that God is at, all, in, God is at work in all things. Let this drive you to, let your need drive you to have a clearer vision of who God is and what he's doing in your life. Even if resolution doesn't come quickly, that's the invitation. Some time ago, I had a student drag me to a movie uh, called Three Billboards that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to you, so I don't see this as a, as a blanket recommendation. It's, it's a fairly disturbing movie in a lot of ways. It, the, the, sub, the, the main plot of the movie that, that takes place before the movie begins is that there was a murder that happened in this small town in Missouri. And, and it was clear early on in the, in the, in the movie that the mother of the, the woman who was killed was entirely distraught because the person who she was convinced had done it had gotten away with it. And there was no, there, you know, the, the, as the movie unfolds, you realize there's no, resolution is not going to come. That's not going to way this movie is going to end. But in the midst of this, the, the mother is reflecting on the situation and says this almost in a broken sort of way, still no arrest. How come, I wonder? Because there ain't no God and the whole world's empty and doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter what we do to each other? I hope not. You see, she's wrestling with the circumstances, and she, and she looks at, at the situation, this lack of resolution, and he says, is this because God doesn't exist? Because the world is empty and it doesn't matter what we do to each other? And all she has in that moment is to cry out and say, I hope that's not the way that it is. Impl implied there is, I don't know if that's the way that it is or not. You may feel that this morning. Like I said earlier, I know, because I know my own heart, the frustration of the circumstances of our lives right now that compound everything and make everything that much more painful. Because some of you know the experience of a loved one being in the hospital right now that you can't go visit because of these circumstances. You know the inab your inability to travel to see friends and family because of these realities. You know the, the frustration and the exhaustion that it, that it is to have, to have to wear a mask in public as much as we do and to have to live there. You know those frustrations. And what I want, to hear, what I want us to hear Psalm 86 guide us to 
even as we long for a resolution that hasn't yet come, is to pray. To pray the frustration. You will not surprise God, I guarantee it. You will not throw something and you will not speak something to him that he is not intimately aware of already. We long for resolution that hasn't yet come. But the hope of the gospel, even as we pray the dilemma and pray the doctrine and pray the way, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus has entered our world and all the promises of God are yes and amen in him, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again as a way to tell us that something greater still awaits us, but that its arrival will be sure and eternal. Beloved, I encourage you to pray the truth of God, to pray your fears, to pray your doubts, to pray with clarity, and to listen for clarity. Beloved, run to your Father wherever you are. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious and merciful God, Father, you know the joys, you know the things that we're excited about, the things we're looking forward to, and you know deeply the things that we fear, that scare us, that daunt us, that overwhelm us. In all of it, we bring it to you and ask that you would hear us. Father, we confess that there are times when it feels like you are silent, that you are inactive, that you do not hear. Remind us of what is true and speak freshly through your word this week. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.